Hey, Randy, have you managed to finish Netflix yet? What have you been binging on lately? Well, let's see, Lily. I've been going back to some of the classics from my youth. You know, movies like Real Genius and Weird Science. Wait a minute. Is there some sort of theme here? Were you inspired by today's guest? I don't think so. Oh, I see. I think I might have been. We're Today we're talking to Holly Hester Riley. She hosts her own podcast, but she's here today to talk about product science and how we can apply some of those techniques to our practice. There's always a debate between how much of what we do is art and how much is science. And I can't wait to see where this conversation goes. So let's get to it. The Product Experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week, we talk to the best product people from around the globe about how we can improve our practice and build products that people love. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and to discover an extensive library of great content and videos. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium articles, unseen videos, AMAs, roundtables, discounts to our conferences around the world, training opportunities, and more. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities, and there's probably one near you. Holly, thank you so much for joining us tonight on the podcast. For anyone who doesn't already know you, and they should, but for mm-hmm. anyone who doesn't, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? How did you get into product? And what are we going to talk about today? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Randy and Lily. I'm so excited to be here. So my name is Holly Hester Riley. Uh, I am the founder of H2R Product Science and the host of the Product Science Podcast. So, you know, got my own podcast that um, might be where some of them have heard of me from. Um, but uh, I've been doing product management. I'm based in New York City. So I sort of have the New York City tech flavor of product management. Um, I was in a couple of really high growth startups and I also did some really early stage startups um, before starting my own business where I teach people the science of high growth product management. Um, And I do that through speaking, through teaching, through coaching and through consulting. You know, you have a lot of the same guests that we have and it's always fun to listen to to your podcast to hear what you get out of them that we don't and vice versa. Yeah, it's very fun to find out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so your company's <laughs> called, you called your company H2R Product Science. Is product actually a science or is it an art or is it somewhere in between? Mm. You know, um, I mean, no surprise. I think it's a science. Um, what I really mean is there's a science to it. I think that we can take a scientific approach to all sorts of things uh, and even art, actually. There's some science to what, what art is considered to be good and what's not and, and things like that. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, when I was starting the business, I thought to myself, how do I position myself? Like, what's unique about the way I do this? And I had uh, I had done academic research science for four years, um, two years in undergrad and two years in grad school. Um, I was actually in a PhD program and that didn't work out. Um, so I took my master's and left, went on my way. And uh, I have always had this angle of like, well, how do we design experiments? How do we analyze results? How do we think about things with the curiosity of a scientist and with the expectation of evidence, the way a scientist has that expectation? Um, and that's that's something that's really important to me that I bring to the way I do product management. In my mind, science also implies validated, replicable results and a certain amount of predictability. Do you find that to be the case? 
You know, to be honest, at a very meta level, I do find that to be the case. And I know this is a kind of a scary thing to say because like there's all sorts of things you can't predict. But what I can predict, what I can repeat, is that if we follow certain processes of when we do different types of experiments, when we go out and get validation, um, how we go through the process of you know, working closely and collaborating with designers and engineers, uh, there are patterns to all of that. Like I see those as a big system and I do think that there are reproducible results when you apply those processes to the way that we do the work. Well, I can't say that ahead of time I could tell you, you know, A versus B design is gonna be the winner. Um, I can tell you that this process is going to get you to a good winning design. Is that one process for everyone or because I know you have your kind of your principles, which you talk around as well. So is it like a flexible process that that's based loosely on those principles or um, is it a very rigorous process? Yeah, it's a flexible process. So I am a big fan of, of, you know, first principles thinking. So the idea that we go back to some basic level principles and then we figure out how do we apply that in different scenarios. And so, um, you know, I have what I call the product science principles um, and I use those as a way to sort of ground what's important if we're going to build a high growth product. Um, and uh, that's um, evidence based product strategy, continuous discovery and delivery and uh, empowered teams. Um, that when you have those three principles in place in whatever process you're following, I believe those are the core things that you have to always have um, in order to build a high growth product team, which is going to build a high growth product. Um, that said, uh, there is a process um, that I generally use, but it's a loose process. It's not a first you do this exercise and then you do this exercise and then you do this exercise and it's always that. It's not that level of prescriptive, um, but it is a general process of, hey, we're gonna start by understanding the landscape. We're gonna start by understanding our current users or product and our competitors. We're gonna, um, we're gonna learn more about it. We're gonna do discovery research to figure out more about it. We're gonna find, you know, commonalities amongst the stages of our um, phases that we're going to go through. And then we're going to use a particular, um, you know, we're going to follow some principles in the way that we communicate where we're headed so that um, teams have that balance between autonomy and alignment that they get when you do a really fantastic job of communicating where the product is supposed to go. Before we go into those specific stages, one of the interesting things that you talk about before we go into those stages is you talk about taking an approach based in behavioral science and psychological principles to this. That's not something that everyone talks about and everyone applies. So can you be a little more specific? What does that actually look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, absolutely. And and thank you for asking because I'm so passionate about it. And and I feel like I'm still like ever the, the, uh, the student in it. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I just think was transformative to our understanding of what's going on in the world is the behavioral science that has developed and the behavioral economics that have developed over the past, you know, couple of decades. Um, so some of the people in this space are, you know, B.J. Fogg, um, Richard Thaler, uh, these people that have been doing work that basically says, surprise, humans are not total rational self-interested beings that always do the thing that's going to lead to the best result for them. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I think when we go back to a lot of the beliefs that our entire society was structured around, we thought that people would always do, you know, follow rational self-interest. But at the end of the day, they don't. And it's and it's there's several reasons for it. Um, and those are there's various, you know, um, psychological studies that show these things. There's a lot of um, biases, you know 
that come into play that basically make us imperfect decision makers. And so that we, um, you know, look at whatever information we have and we make a decision about what to do. And we might think it's the best decision for us. We most likely we think it's the best decision for us, but uh, there's a bunch of reasons why we're wrong. <laughs> and there's actually a science behind all of that. So all these cognitive biases that come into play where we don't understand, you know, a really common one is just like the sunk cost fallacy, you know, the idea that you poured all this energy into something. So you're going to keep going because it would be wasted if you didn't um, keep going. But the truth is that like, that's, that's not the defining factor. If you aren't going to get to success with it, then you're not going to get to success with it, no matter how much of your time you waste on it um, in certain situations. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's those basic ones and then it goes, you know, up to, to much more complex ones. Um, a lot having to do with things over longer term. And if you don't have a background in that kind of behavioral science, but you're trying to kind of take a scientific approach, you know, we all talk about writing hypotheses and um, doing experiments. Are you kind of bound to fail along the way because of the lack of, you know, understanding in some of these areas? Um, You know, even if you have understanding in some of these areas, we're all bound to fail along the way. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have to say that, but that is true, um, because that's part of how we're all going to learn. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, certainly I've worked on teams where I've seen people think that people would do certain things with their products that, that people don't actually do. And, and usually it does have this, this separation where they weren't really taking into account the cognitive biases that get in the way of the user's actions. Um, so I do think that that is definitely a challenge. And if, if a listener, uh, you know, as most of us, I mean, I am not um, like classically trained in it. My degree is in a different kind of science. It's in chemical engineering. So, you know, I, I definitely had an interest in psychology and philosophy and economics. Um, so I studied some of those things. But, you know, it's not what I was like studying for in grad school. Um, so for all of us that are in that boat, I think, you know, just read, like just read a lot and like, you know, or consume educational materials in whatever way you like, if it's watching videos or whatever. But the truth is that these things are so relatively recent in terms of, you know, how things develop in, in academic circles that uh, everybody's in this boat and we all just have to read and learn and try our best to apply it. Mm. So we talked a little bit about the background from a a psychological perspective. The other part of an evidence-based product strategy tends to come from a market analysis. But every time we do things that is evidence-based, that's usually based on previous history and predictability and things we can find out. These last few months have been a little bit wacky from that perspective. How do you take disruptive times and map that into an evidence-based strategy around uh, market analysis? Yeah, such a fantastic question. You know, obviously in my day-to-day life, I have not I have not been excited about the past uh, <laughs> period that we're in here. But in my professional life, in some ways I have been because it's always been a part of the way that I teach that even, even in the past, we shouldn't have been making our strategies based on um, old information, that everything's changing so fast in our current you know, the technology of the world today and the way that everyone interacts over the internet that we kind of always have to do some some first principles research in my mind. So um, with all these changes, it's made it, in fact, easier to tell other people that, <laughs> easier to get reception for it, that, hey, you know, we do need to do some uh, original research to make good strategy decisions. And that original research should be trying to get a sense of what people will do, but we can't do it by asking them what they will do. So um, 
you know, it, it's a core of the kind of product discovery research that I teach anyways, that you would want to go out and talk to customers. You'd want to go out and understand their motivations and their pains and their day-to-day -day life and the way that things are constrained in their day-to-day -day life so that you could predict what you think they're going to do with your product. And that's something that actually hasn't changed. It's just even more critical than it was because now, you know, if it would, if your plan would have been stale in a year before, now your plan is stale in a month, you know, when, uh, when everything changes or at least in, in, Maybe we're now in the point where we can talk about three months at a time. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> and when when you're doing that um, kind of more greenfield research um, of exploring people's kind of pain points and stuff, is there something that you kind of look for in the interviewees that you're going to speak to? As in, like, is is there a way to tell that someone's going to be more forthcoming uh, in giving you good information over mm -hmm. over someone else who might just not speak at all you know um there are some ways but i actually think that we need to hear from everybody so the way that i work around this is really making sure that before you dive into the questions that you really want to know the answers to you just spend time getting to know the person building up that trust between each other in, in that conversation so whether it's you know pointing out something you see in the background of their zoom call and being like hey what's that photo on your wall or you know asking them about where what else they did today or their weekend or whatever um you know just taking the time to do something sort of off topic that gets each other comfortable is really the way that i get around it because at the end of the day we want our products to be used by the quiet people too so we need to understand you know we do want to interview all of them there is one thing I will say, though, which is that if we're doing something grain field, um, if we're trying to get a new product launch off the ground, I do usually try to screen on whether a person is likely to use new products in general. So like if they're um, if they're likely to be early adopters, if they're if they try new things, if they get excited about new things, if they are comfortable with there being some bugs and new software, um, I do usually screen on that in the early stages. Uh, so that we can get a sense of putting our time in people that might actually make a change. So is that to just get traction and make sure you have an initial base? And then if, if that's the case, how do you then move into that later stage of crossing the chasm to the main market? Yeah, it is. It is to get traction. It is, um, you know, historically, I've not worked at companies that had ridiculously huge marketing budgets to just get traction by throwing money at it. So um, <laughs> I think, I, you know, I'm not going to discount that that's a thing that can happen. It could be anything. <laughs> um, but that's but that's not usually where I am. So um, so I am usually screening on that because we're trying to figure out if there's enough of a market that we could get to use it to gain traction and get a foothold. And then to grow from there, um, you know, it's a lot of these sort of entrepreneurial principles of, OK, you know, you've got early users. They can be your reference customers. You can build up. Um, you can prove your trust. You can prove that you're trusted by showing their testimonials, by um, getting them to tell other people, by creating, you know, feedback loops and virality. Virality. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, things like that uh, to, to get over the chasm. But the other thing um, that I typically do that is a big piece of, of crossing the chasm for the products that I work on is I will start with a small piece of the eventual target market that's not just you know it's not just us being like oh 10 percent we'll just randomly pick 10 percent it's actually like okay there's some 10 percent of that market that needs less than the rest of that market so for example when i was working at shutterstock um we were doing a launch for shutterstock editor and um the 
and the total market was going to be anybody who was like a non-professional designer but the initial market was just social media managers and um, that was a small piece of the big market and the way that we got to crossing the chasm is then adding more pieces of that market what, what is the next you know subsection or the next smaller segment within that big picture place we're going um, and the reason why we do it over time is because typically we need to add more and more things to the product for us to satisfy the additional groups. Changes to our digital world in 2020 mean many companies need new tools to help them flourish. And Amplitude is here to help. With their product intelligence platform, they help top product teams at companies like PayPal, Instacart, Peloton, and Atlassian to build product experiences that convert and retain customers. In fact, they've become the gold standard in analytics for teams asking questions like, how are people using our digital products and why do users convert or drop off? Which features drive the most impact and what should we build next? See for yourself how companies like DoorDash and Cisco build for growth using Amplitude. Visit amplitude.com MTP. in all of your kind of um, experience of designing experiments and undertaking them with different businesses and um, the kind of the various different companies that you've worked for, has there been one that's been like the most surprising result or like you were just like, yes, I really Mm. feel like I've found something really useful or, or is it a case of just incrementally learning each time and getting small bits of insight here and there? You know, I do think that there there's always some fascinating insights with every project that I do. There's always something that I'm like, oh, that surprises me. Um, one that comes to mind is uh, I was actually working on a, a health and wellness product and we had some pre-existing assumptions about what the characteristics of the ideal user would be. And then we went out and did some research. And and one of the things that I'm always, um, I feel like is often a battle that I have to push every time I'm working with a new client. It's like, we don't only do the research on the people that we are assuming are the ideal user, because then we don't have the chance to prove ourselves wrong. So um, we need to do this research on a slightly larger set where there's some other things that we, you know, like, a reasonable person might think would be a good user, even if we have some reason why we believe they're not ideal. So in this case, um, I want to say that they had wanted to target young people and um, they thought that young people were, they thought it was trendier for them, like that there was a trend going on in the market for health and wellness that these young people would be more interested in. And um, when we went into the research, I was suggested to them that we not restrict the research on age at all. And we also not restrict the research on gender at all. And that we do the research on, you know, all ages and genders, but restricted in other ways. And we found in in this particular case that, um, you know, uh, older people were more interested. Um, And it was, you know, very counter to what the initial assumptions were. Um, And so that was, you know, one example where it was like, oh, it's a really good thing that we didn't restrict ourselves or we never would have known, you know, that actually, you know, older people are more interested in this. You're talking about we doing the research, and you've also talked uh, uh, earlier about part one of the underlying principles is they have empowered teams. So mm-hmm. who do you get involved in that research? Is it the whole team? Is it 
the product manager? Is it product and UX research? What, what does that look like? Oh, what an excellent question. So I get the whole team involved at different stages of the research. This is something that I learned the hard way, as I'm sure, you know, so many people do, right? I, uh, I had some periods where maybe we did some research, just product and UX did the research together. And then um, it was really hard to get other people to care. Uh, and I said, how do I get people to care? And so I tried different things I'd seen other people do. And um, the thing that has really stuck with me is having some kind of workshop before we go out and do the research that involves everybody. Um, that workshop um, is some kind of collaborative experience that um, either product or UX tend to run, that we invite uh, we invite the whole product development team. You know, we invite the engineers, the designer, the, you know, if there's a scrum master or a project manager or a release manager, we invite them. Um, we also invite, you know, our counterparts in marketing and sales and customer support. Basically anybody who, um, the way I like to say it is either anybody who is going to be building the product and making it come to life, um, anybody who is going to be interacting with users of the product regularly, and anybody who has the power to make the whole thing shut down. Um, so I get all those people uh, in a room and say, okay, we're gonna do a workshop together. And it basically um, say, let's figure out what we think we know about this. Uh, let's start by you know, just extracting knowledge from everybody's brain and figure out what it is that they all think they know about these users and this market and this idea of a product that we have. And then have them generate through that session questions that they have and things that they uh, wish they knew more about or things that they actually are able to realize are assumptions and not facts. And then we use that to guide the research. Then when we go and do the research, um, you know, we don't bring 20 people to the research, so they're not all there. Um, but we do always make sure the research has, um, you know, at least a, a product manager and a, um, a designer are always involved heavily in the research. The lead engineer is usually involved. Um, I like to get the engineers to come to some of the sessions and uh, we always record it and make sure that we're sharing out information with everybody. So even if they can't all attend, you know, and certainly you wouldn't expect all of your engineers to come to all of the sessions, we always share out the results with the whole team um, on a regular cadence, like every sprint, um, so that they're all seeing the results from the research that's happening. Okay, so before we go into, into that, um, that workshop sounds fascinating. So is there a time when it's made a material change in either your approach or the team's approach to something? How do, and how has it worked? Yeah. Um, I mean, I want to say it's worked really well. That's why I keep doing it. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but the truth is that I, I stumbled upon this many years ago at this point. You know, I, I basically had been to like an adaptive path workshop that uh, for any of you who aren't familiar with adaptive path, their design consultancy, that's a, part of Capital One at this point, um, they run a fantastic workshop. I'd gone to their UX intensive and we had uh, spent an entire day on research. And I like had so much fun. I just thought this is really fun. Why isn't work like this? And um, so I was like, maybe I can make work be more like this. And I started running workshops in the company I was at at the time. And ever since then, I've just had a love for working together through collaborative exercises, whether we call it a workshop or not, bringing a bunch of people together and saying, um, I'm going to give you guys the tools so that you could all can speak and we can hear what all of you are saying. And sometimes somebody says something that no one else realized and 
you know, when that happens, of course, it's obvious that it's very valuable. A lot of times people all say things that we all already sort of knew, but even if that's the case, it ends up materially affecting how everything works because everyone comes out of it feeling heard and um, feeling some ownership over what's about to happen and more open to the research that we're about to do rather than getting on the defensive, like, why did you go try to prove this wrong? We already knew that or whatnot. Cool. Did that answer your question, Randy? It did. I was letting you go. <laughs> I was trying to be nice. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fine. Um, so I've um, worked for a couple of startups along the way. And um, one of the things that I always kind of found really interesting as being the difference between a founder and a product manager was founders kind of have, in my in my experience, this not blind faith, but this leap of faith of, um, you know, really believing in the thing that they're pursuing and in the value and the benefit and the opportunity that there is. Whereas I feel like product people can be a little bit more uh, cynical, but in a kind of healthy way. <laughs> um, so, you know, can can founders apply some of the, the scientific method um, and can product people ever be founders? Um, you know, do they need that leap of faith? If we're thinking about the principles um, of, a, you know, building a successful business um, as well as product, is there something lacking in those three that you had, which is like a bit of uh, gusto and <laughs> that sounds very English, but, you know. <laughs> um. You know, I absolutely believe that product people can be great founders and that founders can follow and apply the product science principles. One thing I've noticed in my years since I founded HR Product Science is actually that I do tend to resonate really well with engineering and technical founders. So, um, you know, I think that that's exactly what you said. It's that I'm more likely um, for people to want my help when they already have a scientist mindset and they know that they're not skilled at applying that mindset towards validating their product ideas. But I definitely have worked with several uh, founders who are excited to apply product science to what they're doing and um, maintain that, you know, gusto, um, that energy and passion for where they're going, but are willing to put it through the test. Um, And I think that there's also some product managers out there who have founded companies that have done it in a very, you know, experimentation heavy way um, that also do a fantastic job of, of describing and casting their product vision uh, so that people will follow them. But that, but these are maybe not the average people on either side. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. So I guess it influences the culture that that business then takes on, whether you're very, data and product product mindset very data driven very evidence-led or um if you have a very visionary founder who's all about inspiration and motivation then you end up with just a slightly different culture within the business perhaps i think so and you know the 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 thing that i will say that might be controversial uh is that when you have this visionary founder who leads a successful company but doesn't tend to follow evidence doesn't look for evidence doesn't test their assumptions i actually think the ones who are successful it's kind of luck like in many ways you know those are those are people who 
there's one of two things happening. One is they have a really strong, um, what a lot of people call intuition. And what, when I hear the word intuition, I don't think like, oh, they have this magic skill. I think that they actually understand things at a level that they're not able to put into words. Uh, and that there's actually some science going on to what they're thinking is going to happen, that that's where their intuition comes from, but they can't describe it to others. So all they are left with is saying, it's my intuition. Um, but uh, either they have that kind of processing, there are people who process things in the world around them in a way that makes them see something in the future that others don't see, but there's actually some evidence to what they're doing. They just don't know how to describe it. Or they're yeah. just really lucky. <laughs> I think yeah. both kinds of exist. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I completely agree. So one of the other things you do uh, alongside from consulting is you also do a lot of training of product people and you might do that in your consulting as well. Is there something that you think people have to bring to the job of, uh, of being a product manager or a product person that you can't teach? Is there, there are lots of things we can't teach frameworks and how to do discovery and things like that, but is there something that people have to bring to it as well? Okay. So I've been thinking about this and I fundamentally believe that if somebody really wants to get better at something and they they're willing to make themselves uncomfortable that they can learn the skills that we need. That said, um, I think it's going to go a lot faster uh, if they bring a willingness to be uncomfortable. If they bring that, you know, I can be wrong, I can make the wrong decision. Um, if they're not paralyzed by the fear of making the wrong decision, like, um, you know, people who get stuck with that, I think, you know, they, they need some help getting unstuck before they can be really successful at product management. Um, but I think as long as you're willing to basically put yourself out there and be the person in the room who's like actually making a call when everybody's just spinning their wheels, um, then you're, uh, you can learn a lot of the other skills that we need. Okay. So following on from that, what's the biggest mistake that you see people making again and again that you, if you could had your magic wand and you could stop all product people from making this mistake, what would it be? <laughs> um, believing that everything's going to be so much better next time that we don't <laughs> uh, have to, <laughs> we don't have to plan around it. It's just going to be magic. And so we're going to make all these unreasonable plans. Okay, so being a scientist means being a pessimist is what you're saying. <laughs> a skeptic. I think, I think all scientists are skeptics. <laughs> I think the evidence shows <laughs> that we are, uh, that, that we make mistakes time and again and new challenges will come up. One of the ways I like to describe it is, um, you know, if, if we really think that our team um, is, like, we have two choices. Either one, our team is doing something new and exciting and it's worth a new product. It's worth a new startup. It's worth a new company. And therefore um, we should all be working on that, but it's so new and exciting that we can't accurately predict what it's going to take to do or two, we're doing something that we can accurately predict, but therefore that's because it's well known. And if it's well known, then sure we can say how long it's going to take to do and what we're going to be able to put it in. And, you know, we can make all of our plans and launch dates and all of that. Um, but it's not going to revolutionize the market because it's the way reason it's so well known is because people have already done these things. So 
um, I do actually think mm. there's there's a good reason for this, that it, it makes sense when you go back to the first principles. I love that. It's a very optimistic take on my pessimism. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're so welcome. <laughs> oh, leave it to me to find a way to make that skepticism positive. <laughs> Holly, thank you for joining us on the podcast. That was absolutely wonderful. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you guys so much for having me. So, Lily, after that, are you going to be wearing a lab coat to work tomorrow? You know, I actually think that's a really good idea. Maybe if I feel more like a scientist and dress like one, then I'll behave more like one and do more experiments. Ooh, fake it till you make it. As long as you're experimenting on the right things, then that should be just fine. See you next week, people, for another fine episode of the product experiment. I mean, experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Emily Tate is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg-based band POW, that's P-A-U. Thanks to Arna Kittler, who runs Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. Connect with your local product community via Product Tank, our regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, you can consider starting one yourself. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. Product Tank is a global community of meetups driven by and for product people. We offer expert talks, group discussion, and a safe environment for product people to come together and share learnings and tips. Mm-hmm.